If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew again this morning to the 18th chapter. We are at the end of the fourth major section of teaching. As I've said to you, there are five major sections of teaching in Matthew, beginning with the first one, the Sermon on the Mount. Some scholars think that's Matthew's way of rearticulating the five books of the law um, in this great gospel that he is telling, giving us of the life of Jesus. But today we find ourselves at the end of this amazing sermon on the kingdom um, in verse 21 through verse 35. If you're able, this morning I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive as many as seven times? Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. There's a little footnote that you can go down to that says, it could be translated 70 times, seven times. Jesus said, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, they brought to him a servant who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Because the servant didn't have enough to pay it back, The master ordered that he should be sold along with his wife and children and everything he had and that the proceeds should be used as payment. But the servant fell down, kneeled before him and said, please be patient with me and I'll pay you back. The master had compassion on that servant, released him and forgave the loan. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 coins. He grabbed him around the throat and said, pay me back what you owe me. Then his fellow servant fell down and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he threw him into prison until he had paid back his debt. When his fellow servants saw what happened, they were deeply offended. They came and told the master all that had happened. His master called the first servant and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you appealed to me. Shouldn't you also have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? His master was furious and handed him over to the guard, responsible for punishing prisoners until he had paid the whole debt. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you don't forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I'm going to try another pop culture reference today. Usually they fall flat. Um, Let me give it one more try. So I'm going to confess to you uh, this morning to, that I love a song that I'm not supposed to like. Um, it's a song that some of you also may like because it's unquestionably beautiful. It is objectively a beautiful song. But its beauty at times hides its deep subversiveness. In fact, across the last 50 years, next year will be the 50th anniversary of the writing of this song, which will make us feel old in just a moment. But across the last 50 years, it has been banned a number of times, um, especially in Christian schools. But I still like it. So in 1971, in the midst of political tensions over the Vietnam War, uh, the great songwriter John Lennon wrote this now famous song. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. 
Nothing to kill or die for. Here's the line I'm not supposed to like. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So part of what I love about that song, first of all, is the whole idea of imagination. So as I've said to you often, I think that what I'm here to do today and my calling as a preacher pastor is to week after week mess with you and your imagination. That we, all week long, our imaginations are shaped in certain kinds of ways to view and see the world. That's why I took off my glasses, because I, as so often say to you, I think of them as a kind of pair of glasses that we actually can't take off, but they're constantly being messed with and refocused. And all week long, our imaginations are shaped to see and understand and interpret the world in certain kinds of ways. And what I am called to do is, as the body of Christ gathers together in this particular place, to open the Word of God, to hear the way in which our imaginations are called to be shaped by God's Spirit and shaped by God's Word, and then proclaim that in such a way that it just sort of messes with your glasses. And it begins to focus and realign our vision and imagination to understand the world not as we too often see it as broken and fragmented, but to see it as the place where God's spirit dwells and where God's kingdom is breaking out. And so I like that Lennon wants to mess with our imaginations and get us to think about the world and imagine it in some pretty radical, subversive ways. But of course, what's problematic with the song, especially for a Christian pastor, is what Lenin wants us to imagine. A religionless, nationless, post-capitalist world where people then live in peace and harmony. And I know some of you are getting nervous and you're getting sweat right here. And you want to say, oh, hippie garbage. Uh, that kind of 70s, over-idealistic, over, uh, over or under-politicized understanding of the world that's just kind of garbage. I, and I understand that. Trust me, I was raised not unimagined, but uh, I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, <laughs> which is God's answer to imagine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but what haunts me about the song is that somehow John Lennon and those who love not just how the song sounds, but what the song means. What haunts me is that in Lennon's view, the world would have been less violent and less divided and less lethal without religion, perhaps without Christianity. And if I'm honest today, as somebody who loves church history, Too often, I have wondered if John Lennon is right. How could a people who claim this text as sacred scripture and have committed themselves to living this out, we have not been the only source of brokenness and violence and division in the world, but too often we have been participants in that brokenness and violence and division. And so here, um, in this last of these four major sections of teaching, which, if you have your Bible still open, begins with this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And so, 
Jesus goes on to talk again and again about what grace, greatness looks like. It looks like forgiveness, reconciliation. It looks like very, being very cautious that we don't harm the other. But then Peter jumps in in verse 21 with this question, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now let me tell you, normally the rabbinical answer to that question is three. So in Jesus' day, the answer to that question, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister in ways that reflect my relationship to God, the answer was three. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times, and our relationship is over. Right? Like, that seems fair. Peter is being spiritual and saying, well, I know three is the right answer, Lord, but I was thinking, after hearing all of this wonderful talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, I'm thinking maybe we should up that. Seven, oh, seven is such a good number. It's the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And so Peter, I mean, we know Peter at this point. He's stepping forward to show how cool he is. He's got the Sunday school answer right. How many times, Lord? I'm thinking I'll do it seven times. To which Jesus responds, now I tell you not seven times, but 77 times or perhaps 70 times seven times. And as you probably know, Jesus' answer is not, well, you're going to need a bigger piece of paper, Peter, to keep track. But Jesus is upping the number to such a degree that he's essentially saying to Peter, throw the paper away. Now, let me pause here for just a moment because I, I, I always want to add this in. In these really challenging texts from the Gospel of Matthew about taking up the cross and reconciliation and forgiveness, this is not talking about cheap grace. And so I always want to have a caveat to say to some of you, maybe even in this room or watching, some of you who are in relationships that have been, have been abusive and broken and have been damaging, the call of the gospel is not to stay in those situations or to overlook them, to pay them no attention. Forgiveness is not overlooking the sin of the other. So if you've picked up anything over these last few weeks, the cross, if it is anything, it is something that exposes sin, that exposes the lack of justice in the world, that exposes our brokenness. It does not just live with it. And so forgiveness is an invitation to call sin, sin, to, to name it, to recognize the hurt that has happened between us, the times when we sin against one another. But it is a deep invitation to not allow that sin to have the last word. But to participate in this forgiveness and grace and mercy that is no longer keeping track but has thrown the whole piece of paper away. But this morning, I think Jesus is doing something so incredible and I want to draw your attention to it. So I know we've done this a couple of times before but I'm not sure you were paying attention and this is going to be on the test. In fact, I'm going to lecture about it all week. So if you're in my theology class, it really is on the test. So put something in Matthew 18. Go with me all the way back to Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 11 is this fascinating part of the scripture. Genesis 12 through 50 tells us the story of Abraham through Joseph, those four matriarchal and patriarchal families in which God begins his mission of reconciliation and redemption. But Genesis 1 through 11 is essentially the Jewish way of saying, how did the world get into this mess in the first place? 
And so let's take these ancient narratives and we'll narrate them in ways that, that, that reveal our theological understanding of why the world is the way the world is. And so we get Genesis chapter 1, that amazing hymn of creation. The first three days, God separates light and dark, sea and sky, dry land, days 4, 5, and 6, filling with sun, moon, and stars, birds and fish, animals and humans. And it was good. Oh, chapter 1, so good. Oh, it's all, it's very good. Chapter 2 and 3, not as good. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And you know how the story goes. The serpent tricks Eve. Eve eats the fruit, gives it to Adam. Now everything, this unbroken relationship with God in the garden is now broken, and they hide from God. God comes to find them, and when he finds Adam, he says to him, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, oh, Lord God, Yahweh Almighty, creator of all things, I am so sorry for what I have done. I know that there was a law to this garden that I have now violated, so have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. No. Right? That's not how it went. God finds Adam, says, Adam, what have you done? Adam says, hey, dude, don't look at me. There's three of us in this garden. That woman who you created. Right? Like, this is not my fault. Look at, look at you and look at her. So he doesn't do well, but then God says, Eve, what have you done? And Eve says, oh, Lord, I am sorry. I listened to false things about you, and I partook of the fruit, and I have created destruction, and I want repent. No, she said, don't look at me, the serpent. What's the deal with that thing? <laughs> right? The serpent tricked me. So it doesn't go well. There's no reconciliation. There is exile now from the garden. Now we get to generation two, Cain and Abel. Fascinating story. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a sheep herder. They offer their gifts to the Lord. We don't know all the reasons they weren't acceptable, or Cain's was less acceptable than, than Abel's, but Abel's is accepted. It creates jealousy and anger in Cain's life. He takes him out to the field. He kills his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and says, Cain, what have you done? And Cain says, oh, God, I don't know why you have rejected me, but I am sorry. I, I clearly have done something wrong. I have allowed my anger to overcome my better sense. I have I've killed my brother Abel. I confess you, you're right in your judgment against me, but have mercy. No. Cain said, what, am I my brother's keeper? Whoop, Right? Now, God, right there, should have said, yes. <laughs> but God, and we're already starting to learn some things about God. God says, essentially, this would be horrible if what Cain has unleashed in the world gets further unleashed. So here's the thing. I'm going to put a mark on him. And if anyone acts on Cain the way Cain has acted to Abel, I will enact a vengeance sevenfold on them. Have mercy on Cain, who did not ask for mercy. Genesis 6.11, the Noah story. God looks at this creation he has made that now is kind of living in these cycles of patterns of violence and chaos and brokenness. And God says, oh, this breaks my heart. This is awful. And, and like looking at someone's body full of cancer and, and unleashing a kind of chemotherapy to try to take care of that cancer. God unleashes the waters of chaos to try to heal this violence that has corrupted the whole creation. 
But when it's all over, Noah gets drunk and naked, and we're kind of right back where we started, leading to Genesis 11, where you now have this empire that thinks we don't need God. We can, we can become great by building this ama- amazing economy and city, and we will not need anybody to care for us because we can care for ourselves. We do not have to depend on God because we have the strength and the might and the wealth to be able to take care of our own problems. And that leads to chaos and brokenness and a divided map. You with me? Now, if you have Genesis still open, go to chapter 4, verse 23. In the middle of it is a genealogy. The first genealogy in Scripture. It's only seven generations. We've already talked about seven today. Bing, 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 right? Like, if you hear seven, this is the number of completion. So our seventh ancestor from Adam, the embodiment of who, what humanness looks like, is a guy named Lamech. Lamech, chapter 4, verse 23. Here's his song. Please underline this. Chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech had three sons, two wives. And now it's indented in your Bible because it's a kind of poem or song. I always joke. It's kind of a country and western song. Lamech grabs his guitar. He's got a truck, a dog, a shotgun. And he says, bong, 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 bong. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, woo, pay attention to my words. Choo-choo-choo. I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain will be paid back seven times, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. And there's a footnote down in your Bible that says, or it could be 70 times, seven times. Now, I'm joking about that, but I really want you to know this song. Because I'm convinced that what Genesis is trying to say to us is, this is how, this is what's been woven into the heart of all of us. We do not have a heart of mercy and forgiveness. We have a heart of retribution and revenge. And so when Lamech is messed with, he unleashes the 77-fold vengeance into the world. And so now go to Matthew. Peter says, Lord, I love this mercy talk. And I've been thinking, my rabbi told me to forgive my brother three times, but ah. Oh, how about seven times, Lord? And I am convinced what Jesus is doing is looking at these little boys who had grown up in Jewish children's church who knew Lamech's song so well. He's looking at them and saying, no. You, my disciples, people who have taken up the cross and decided to follow me, you're going to lose track of how mercy is going to affect your life and relationships. For I'm not inviting you just to forgive more than your neighbor forgives people. I'm inviting you to participate in the reversal of the curse of Lamech in the world. To love, to have mercy, to forgive. And to do that in such a way that this broken, fragmented world is healed by the grace and mercy and spirit of God. And then he goes into this parable. Now, I'm going to say a couple more really troubling things today. But I got my resume together. Um, I, 
I don't really like the tone of Matthew's parables, Brent. I know that may sound heretical to say, but if you go through Matthew, almost every parable of Jesus ends with a kind of judgment, a warning of judgment, like this one does. This man who owes, and I love what the Common English Bible does, all these multiple bags of gold, because in the text, what the man owes is just hundreds of years of service. He's never going to be able to pay it back. But the master has mercy on him, but he doesn't have mercy on the guy who owes him just a little bit. And now we get this warning, oh, don't do that, because if you don't forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven. Yeah! Matthew's parables almost always come with that kind of warning. So here's, here's the thing. If Luke told this parable, I'm convinced Luke would tell it differently. Here's how Luke would tell the parable. This man, he has this huge debt, but the master forgives him. And so then he goes out and he sees this neighbor who owes him a small debt and he remembers, oh yes, the master forgave me that debt. And he will forgive his neighbor that small debt. And here's the, the neighbor goes home and realizes his neighbor even owes him a smaller debt. And he will forgive that debt. Because Luke will tell it in such a way that the year of Jubilee has come and it's breaking out. Oh, thanks be to God. But for those kind of scholarly folks here, Matthew is writing right after the fall of Jerusalem. And he has seen what happens when destruction and judgment comes. And so he's saying to us who read this parable, listen, take this seriously. And not just because of the judgment of God, but because here's the problem. Those who live the life of Lamech, who continue to, to unleash a lack of mercy in the world, what you are doing is you are creating a world that is not merciful but judgmental. A world where the other is always a source of fear. And what happens, sisters and brothers, is we end up with a world where we are terrified of every stranger. And where we're constantly thinking about how to protect ourselves. Why? Because we have unleashed a lack of mercy into the world. So this text, today... Not that you should care this much about this, but today is the 19th Sunday of ordinary time. Let's pray. Um, Brent said amen because he cares about this. Today is the 19th Sunday of year A in the lectionary. Now, here's what that means. So today, we've heard the psalm for today. We responded to it in responsive reading. I read the epistle for today from Romans. We didn't have time for the Old Testament text from Exodus on your own time. But this is the gospel text for the Sunday between September 11th and September 17th every third year. Okay, so stay with me. So every three years, if you're still here in three years, we will read these texts again. Now I may preach on the Exodus text or something like that, but we will hear these texts again. Now here's why that's fascinating. So this week, in preparation for the sermon, I was looking at all sorts of sources of people who also follow the lectionary in their preaching, and so many of them said, we are on the seventh cycle of hearing this text since September 11th, 2001. 
And the first time in this cycle that we heard this text was actually on the one-year anniversary of uh, September 11, 2001, when the memory of 9-11 was so fresh in everybody's memory. <laughs> and here's my point. It was so interesting to read all these people saying, Dah! I don't know how to spell that, but that's what they were saying. Dah! Great. On this Sunday, every year or every third year, when we are thinking about and remembering this horrible act of terrorism, this is the text that's before us as a congregation. This text. And so it's so fun to read preacher after preacher say, I'm going to skip this one, okay? Or, no, or saying, I, I don't know what to do with this. Because here's what I want to say out of this week. By the way, it's fascinating. Sophie and her freshman friends, this is the second group of college students for whom 9-11 is history and not something they experienced. So if imagine being 50 years old didn't make you feel old, that one did. But as we were reflecting, and I was reflecting on Friday, and please hear my heart on this. Stay with me. We should not, nor will we ever forget the 2,996 people who died both in those towers and those as first responders responding to those in in the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania. It's right that we should never forget that. And we should remember those horrible events. I remember where I was. I know you do too. I was teaching at SNU. I was in the basement. And class ended, and we sat around a television and cried. And I was a worship pastor at the time, and that night we had an amazing worship service and time of just lament and grief. But here's what we don't always really reflect on and remember, and that is the consequences in the last 19 years. So in the last 19 years, 7,000 U.S. soldiers and more than twice that of independent contractors that the government has hired have died in either Afghanistan, Iraq, or Pakistan. Well more than 10,000 soldiers have been wounded. Nearly half a million, 480,000 Iraqis, Afghanis, and Pakistanis have died. The vast majority of those civilians, not military. And it's estimated that another 2 million people have died because of the lack of structure, medical care, economy, as consequences of those conflicts. And the cost in in material has been $6 trillion. Not not million or billion, $6 trillion with 12 zeros. Now, hear me. I, I am not trying to be judgmental of that or even anybody who made decisions or participated because in that kind of act of terror, I would argue our natural response was to say, how do we go get justice? In fact, if we take this text seriously, the consequences of the last 19 years are exactly what the children of Lamech will do. Kill our 3,000, we'll take out your 3 million. And so I was thinking on Friday, 
that we will never forget the tragedy and the heroism of those 2,996 people who died on September 11th, 2001. As Christians, we will never forget the injustice and courage of the cross. However, every time we remember the cross, we also remember and commemorate that that horrible moment of injustice met with courage is also the moment where violence became a moment of grace and healing and mercy for the sake of the whole world. And so I have to say I was lamenting this week because although we will never forget 9-11, I just wish 19 years later, I do think there are some moments of grace that we can point to. I just wish we had more moments of healing to remember today. So it's still sad to me um, that John Lennon believed that the answer to the puzzle of peace could only come with a religionless world. By the way, though, that's not far off from what Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought, too. He argued we needed less religion and more genuine Christian faith. And so if I could talk to John today, I can't, but if I could... I might say to John, imagine there is a heaven, a heaven that is breaking into earth. It isn't easy. It is a gift of the Spirit. Imagine there is a hell, a place of judgment and death, largely of our own making. However, it is a place whose gates cannot stand up against the transforming grace and mercy of God. Imagine all the people living toward the day of God's glorious new creation. Imagine there's a kingdom where people from every nation, tribe, and language are included. We can do it, but it takes faith and perseverance. Imagine people laying down the sword, taking up the cross, and working for peace. No longer known as the children of Lamech, but as the Sermon on the Mount says, peacemakers who are known as the children of God. A people whose, whose faith is not dividing, but making all things new. Imagine all the people living life in peace. The lion and the lamb laying down together. yoo hoo you may say, I'm a dreamer. I'd prefer you said, I'm a believer. But I'm not the only one. For Christ is calling us to follow him in the way of mercy. And someday, someday, even we children of Lamech will learn to live as one. God, help us today. Thanks a lot for putting this text today. When our brother or sister sins against us, it's not something we ignore. In fact, it's easy for us to remember. 
You're a God who takes our sins seriously. But you're a God, and thanks be to you, God, that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And that your grace is greater than our sin. And so we who are trying so hard to forgive our sisters and brothers in all of their different forms, three times, or maybe some of us super spiritual ones, seven, we need your help today to know how to throw away the piece of paper and to live as people who have so received mercy that we cannot help but extend mercy to others. Have mercy on us. Um, even if we have never heard the name Lamech, we know his song well. And so we look around our divided world today, and we are not pulling an Adam today. We are not saying, don't look at me, look at them and them and you. <laughs> we will cry out like David. Have mercy on us, O oh God, and teach us to have mercy on others. I pray this with all my strength today. May we no longer be known as the children of Lamech, but help us to make peace in the world so that we can be known as the children of God. Shape that imagination on us. Give us the habits that will form that imagination and give us the spirit that will empower us to live faithfully as those people in the world. For we pray this not in our name or the name of any leader, past or present or even future. We pray this in the name of the world's one true king, Jesus Christ, the risen one. It's his name we pray. And God's people said, amen, amen.